I once uh, went wanted to go skydiving when I was a teenager, right? and um, and I, um, because they gave me a very cheap parachute, um, I couldn't go if there was a certain amount of wind. It, and I wish they hadn't given me a cheap parachute because that's not the best way to. So, but did they, they tell you this ahead of time that they told me that if there was more than ten miles an hour wind, I wasn't going to be able to jump out of the plane. So I went several times, and I could. They wouldn't let me jump, and I was getting more and more anxiety and nervous and scared about. Oh, I can imagine. Like, so I went to the uh, clinic in the university at Western, and they um, they prescribed Valium for me. So I was taking Valium before I was supposed <laughs> to jump out of an airplane, which isn't exactly in my mind the best thing. Like, oh man, yeah. like like oh, am I supposed to pull the drawstring or like? <laughs> But you did it. I finally did one jump. There was all, I only had one day, even though I went several times, I could only jump once. And how was it? It was great. But um, I, I, I remember just getting so full. I mean, it's different. It wasn't depression, but it was total anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in the meantime, for some reason, a lot of people died in skydiving that year. <laughs> <laughs> but did you want to do it again because of that? I joined the Ontario Federal Ontario Association of Skydivers because I wanted to, and I just never got around to doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, my parents were freaked. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And they've never done a documentary on skydiving. No, but I, I always loved, I love those, those you know, you know it's so cool, skydiving, because wow. you fall... With, especially with its other people. So right. you're relatively, it's like flying. And then you can attain 60, like 100 kilometer per hour horizontal speeds. Um, so in relation to each other, you really feel like you're flying. Um, I can't and, imagine what that would be like. Yeah, yeah. But you only did it once. I only did it once. And um, and it, it, it was an automatic, uh, like I didn't have to pull, like it was joined to a, a, a rope or right. whatever. And, uh, but my, apparently I was superb at aiming my parachute. <laughs> I landed in the middle of the professional target, like on the bullseye. There's a, for, for the guys who've been doing it for a long time, they aim for that. Wow. And I aim for it, but I didn't think I was, you can't really see right down because your body's in the way. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been, this could have led you to a totally different path. <laughs> so yeah. I am sitting here talking to documentary filmmaker Larry Weinstein. Thank you for coming and Thank having you for chat having with me. me. Thank you, Marco. Um, it's such a it's a pleasure to to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, tell me how you first got into filmmaking. How did I first I I um I actually made my first film in high school with a bunch of friends. Okay. Uh, we we made a a silly spy spoof called um uh the short mission or the brief case and it was so even the title was a pun and um it was so much fun i i was one of the directors but i also um had three acting roles in it and uh, i was 16 and and actually what happened was um i don't know if it's tr if it's a fact that's true but my my older sister had told me um about a year earlier that by the time you're 16 you basically have to have chosen your career route. You have, 
And I don't know if she did this to freak me out because she knew I had no ideas right. about anything and, and felt very childish and was the last thing in the world was me thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. But um, she said, by the time you're 16, you, you have to basically know what you're going to be doing and, and your, your path will be set. So I was panicky. And, and I made this film in, in this class, this experimental class in my high school, uh, a class called The Silver Screen, which was a combination of looking at great movies and then making really silly Super 8 films. And it was so enjoyable uh, that, that I thought, aha, I'm 16 and I now know what I want to do. And it's too late because my sister told me you have to know by the time you're 16. So I've chosen it. And the next year I made uh, my first documentary, which was um, I had just become a vegetarian six months earlier when I was 17. And I made a documentary about a slaughterhouse and, and the killing of cows. So the, the documentary didn't influence the fact that you became a vegetarian? It, it, it wasn't. It didn't influence. A lot of people think I became a vegetarian because I made a film about a slaughter about the slaughterhouse. But in fact... I had been a uh, <laughs> I had been a vegetarian for about half a year already, and I felt this desire to eat meat again. I I had found out that there are certain hormones in meat that make it addictive, and and that you might have cravings, and there were certain things like hamburgers that I was missing, and there weren't a lot of veggie imitation options at the time, right? Because um, we're talking about the uh, early to mid nineteen seventies, and uh, so. Uh, I made this film basically to reinforce my decision to be a vegetarian, and it worked. And I've been a vegetarian ever since. Can I ask why you decided to become a vegetarian initially? Oh, I was, uh, I, I was always extremely... It, it wasn't mor morality, it wasn't environmental, it wasn't all those good reasons. I was just very squeamish. I've always been very squeamish. People ask me about, they, oh, you love animals because you're vegetarian. Like and and I've never had pets. I've never had cats or dogs, and um, and I don't particularly like them. Um, I'm allergic to cats. <gasps> okay, I, I have cats. <laughs> yeah, I know my eyes are itchy right I'm now. Sorry. <laughs> um, and I uh, yeah, and I just I don't actually want to be near them. This is this is politically incorrect. I'm telling you this. Um, because but it's interesting. I do think they're cute. I, I, I have to. I can see why people like them. And I, when I go for long walks and I see people walking their dogs, I, I admire the golden retrievers and all these wonderful walking dogs. And I think, oh, that'd be great. Until I see them stooping and scooping, and I, I gag. Um, so I, <laughs> I have to ask your sister. Um, yeah. Did she know what she wanted to be by age 16? And did she accomplish that goal? That's a good question. My sister, um, Judy, is, is a brilliant person. And she uh, was always a really good writer. And she was very artistic. And she, um, I'm, I'm trying to think now, I've never really thought about that. Um, she is a great, she writes haiku every day. She wakes up and creates a beautiful haiku, which is wow. a reflection of of her state of mind and, and what's happening in the world. She, she now, um, she's been living in a kibbutz in Israel for quite a long time. Um, and met a man there and they had four children. They have four wonderful children. And, and she's, um, she went into making puppets and, um, and, and teaching English using her beautiful puppet creation. So she's very artistic. And when I think about it as a 16 year old, she kind of was, there she was writing 
little books and binding them and 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 then when she went to university margaret atwood was one of her teachers but hmm. but um i think she was a better writer than margaret atwood and she went on and and uh yeah so yeah. but by, by the time you've made your first documentary on the slaughterhouse did you know that this is what you wanted to pursue and be a documentary filmmaker it's interesting i i um I loved this this spy film, which was purely dramatic, right. if you can call it that. And you could have maybe gone into acting. As I well. could. <laughs> I was a terrible actor. <laughs> but I um, I felt the power in this. I mean, when you make a film about a slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. and I was the cameraman too, and I I'd be at the end of every shoot, I was dripping with blood and pieces of dead animal all over me, which is. Which is, I told you, I, I did I did this because I'm squeamish. That's mm-hmm. why I'm a vegetarian. Um, the idea of eating organs and blood and, and sucking marrow. And, and it just was really a gross thing to me. And yet, as a camera, as a filmmaker and a cameraman, if, when they cut the jugular vein of a cow and, and it was pouring onto me so I could get a good shot, it was magic. As long as it's through a lens. Wow. I, I didn't mind it at all. And the smell and everything, and and I forgot that I was, and only when I put the camera down did I really look at it and go, let me out of here. Um, and I, so by the time I was seventeen or eighteen, I had done both uh, my, uh, you know, little foray with drama and 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 also documentary, and I just found there was so much power in in that those documentary images, and my teacher. I was taking a media course, um, and I did this instead of writing an essay. I wrote, uh, made this film with with a couple of friends, and and uh, the teacher was so, uh, I guess, impressed by the slaughterhouse film that he showed it to many classes. And apparently, a, a large a proportion of my high school had become vegetarians after seeing it. <laughs> and then he he had us go and show it. Um, to a conference, a, psych, a, a psychiatric conference at York University, um, and and uh, what, some of the people there who were attending uh, asked me if I had a degree in psychology, a university degree, and I went, "No, I'm a high school student." And so I was, I was just kind of impressed that that people were impressed by it. And so it was, were you it was hooked gross. at that point? Yeah, I was pretty hooked. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really. Um, I love the idea. I thought I thought being a filmmaker, and I had other influences too at the time that really interested me, and and mostly about music. I right. Think. Okay. Yeah. So you're known for your work in music. Yeah. A lot of documentaries. So I, did you have a musical background? No, I'm not a musician. My my um, father um, and mother are both from New York, and. Um, my father uh, used to be a, a super in, in in a supernumerary in, in the, at the Met Opera. Oh, I mean, just holding Spears and Aida. He always said that they they gave him extra money if he promised not to sing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he loved music and and would always play these records. And my mother did too. She loved more kind of sentimental. Um, you know, American songbook kind of things. Right. My father loved classical music. And, and I remember waking up on weekend mornings and hearing the Polovitsian dances or Wagner's Tristan and Isolde or Debussy or, or whatever. I, I also, by the way, I, I one thing that I, when I think about the Slaughterhouse movie, I, I did impose a lot of music. I, I put a lot of music into it, including 
um, uh, Claude Debussy piano music uh, as you're see, as you're seeing the, the jugular vein being slit and or the dead baby cows coming out of the cows and then um, did that come naturally to to put music into your work I love the juxtaposition of 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 gruesome images with beautiful music and um, and because uh, it's a hard thing to do like when when it when it's done well music can add so much to the visual yeah but it's not easy to yes find that piece of music that will work and and how do you go about finding that piece of music sometimes the piece of music um would influence what the film okay so in in, in university i went to york university and i right. took film courses and and still did this super eight thing where you it's a double system where you play music um it's basically you run the super eight projector and you have a, a music tape at the same time and and so you know using host the planets the mars from host the planets or something for a a dramatic film about uh, a hermit on a on a desert island who kills people you know <laughs> juvenile things like that um but but in terms of music it, it's always been a very visceral thing for me i i loved certain composers as a teenager uh i did like a certain amount of pop music but it, it was the classical music that that really um influenced me and really stayed with me and i um I sometimes thought it had to do with my own cheapness. Um, I didn't have a lot of money, and I'd go and and go to Sam the Record Man or A and A's, you know, um, and I would buy um, LPs of classical music because I thought it was a better investment. I figured that pop music it would be a phase. <laughs> yes, I can buy. And my and my sister, older sister, already had. Simon and Garfunkel and Bob Dylan and 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 Leonard Cohen and and a lot of other people, uh, whereas I would um, buy this classical stuff and and in and books also I would buy Dostoevsky, or Don Quixote or things that I thought were a better investment because mm. I was cheap. But it served you well because you wound up doing a lot of <laughs> classical music documentaries, right? Yes. So the one obsession, the one. Um, uh, exception was was uh, the music of Lou Reed. Right. I, I, I everything. I, for some reason, I became obsessed with his his stuff in the Velvet Underground. And, yeah. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I, I I think I had a bit of a boring existence, and I think I lived vicariously through the Lou Reed of 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 you know. I think that was a very interesting. Also, I maybe have a bit of a connection with New York, although my parents' New York was nothing like Lou Reed's New York. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> strange. I don't think they were really um, typical walk on the wild side type people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, from Transformer, from that same album, um, Perfect Day was a song that really moved me. And it was the song of my wife and my wedding. It's oh, like it was okay. our song that we danced to, Perfect Day. So I wonder if... if- You've done so many different music documentaries. Do you approach music of different genres differently in terms of the documentary? So if you're doing um, a documentary on Lou Reed versus on Beethoven or, who, you know, Mozart, whoever else yeah. you've done, is it, is, there a, is it all the same in terms of, not all the same, but the approach is the same? Does it matter oh, no. what genre it is? I, I feel like every film has, uh, deserves its own approach. And uh, I get bored. Um, I, I, I find that some filmmakers, you can tell that it's their film, uh, partly because of stylistic things, but also just the way in which they deal with the content. Right. You know 
even though it's incredibly competent, you know a Ken Burns film right. from a Ken Burns film. Even though it's very interesting, you know a Michael Moore film from a Michael Moore film, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I try to be kind of invisible as a filmmaker um, for whatever reason. And I want to get into the subject. I want to understand what the subject is. And and I, I'm proud of, uh, I like the chameleon aspect of a director. There's an article about you called The Maestro of Offbeat Musical Documentaries. And I think you're known for pushing the boundaries of documentaries in, in the way that you, sometimes you present things. Is that a conscious thing? It's, it's, if you have the budget um, for a film, um, it's nice to um, push in different directions. And it's not just about budget. It's just about... I guess I, I've always been aware... Well, listen, I mean, the films that I make are pretty rarefied subjects. You don't get a lot of filmmakers, like, fighting over a chance to make a film about Arnold Schoenberg mm-hmm. or, uh, or whatever I make a film about, or Hans Eisler, the communist composer who was a huge influence in, during um, the pre-World War II days. But he, how many people uh, in Toronto go around whistling Hans Eisler tunes? Um, so... I, but, but I am aware that some of the subjects that I'm making films about, this might be the one and only chance to make a film about that person. And it may be the only film about that person. Um, and so I really want to treat, I treat these subjects with a lot of respect. And, and, and I, I like to think that it's a certain humility, um, even though the, the, the um, filmmaker's voice might be you know, bold and and have a certain ego about it in terms of trying to push boundaries. It's really just about I mean, that might that might be that that you know on the outside that might seem what it is. Um, I've suddenly I've suddenly not I, I can't construct words. It's a part of my catology where I lose language. <laughs> oh great! Um, <laughs> I just it's like feel so bad. I feel like Maurice Ravel at the end of his life when he lost his <laughs> right. ability to speak. Uh, which I made a whole film about. You made two films on him. I right? made two films on Maurice Ravel. Ravel was my first um, love, in effect. I, I um, and you know, I was just telling you about my cheapness of of buying uh, <laughs> classical records because I thought they would have lasting value. Um, uh, Maurice Ravel was a composer that I really was moved by his music, uh, but I also was aware that he didn't write huge amounts of music in his life, and that I could actually buy. All, all his music and not and not you know right. as opposed to the 627 works of Mozart which is a far more expensive prospect right and and so I, I or Beethoven wrote a lot more than Ravel so uh, but 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 seriously man seriously folks <laughs> I, I think Ravel's um, the, the harmonies of Ravel to this day I don't even need cats to cry when I'm listening <laughs> to his music as I see you crying. Even though he did a beautiful cat duet in, in his uh, opera, L'Enfant et des Sortilèges, The Bewitched Child, or whatever it translates to, there's this incredible cat duet, a male and female cat. They're going, meow. And they're, they're, they're combating, they're, they're, they're sexually attracted, and then they start scratching each other. And um, apparently it was Maurice Ravel himself who loved cats, and often you see cats in his arm in photographs. He... Um, he uh, was perfect at imitating cats, and uh, and, wow. and and this is and he had a, a woman friend who also imitated cats, and he actually notated their conversation as cats for his <laughs> operatic duet. 
<laughs> how far, how much of a tangent can I go in from, from your question? Um, we step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. The first film you made uh, about the choir, um, the making the of community the orchestra. community orchestra. Sorry, yeah. orchestra. Which we, and, and choir, there's a choir in the so orchestra. That got, that was a directorial debut, correct? And, and, and it got... I had worked with my partners, um, Barbara and Neve, at Rhombus Media uh, before it was Rhombus um, for a number of years. And, and about five years into it, I was trying to get projects off the ground and they just weren't happening. And then uh, we had this chance. We had already started working with professional orchestras and musicians. And then we were um, given this opportunity through TV Ontario uh, to make a music film. But but they wanted something that would reach the every man or every woman, um, something that was more, I guess, democratic. And and we wanted uh, we we thought and Barbara was the producer of doing a film on a community community orchestra. So we started seeking out which community orchestra within Ontario would be a good subject, and and I directed that film, and it was a, a total pleasure, and I was you know dying at that point to direct um and it was a lot of fun and and but it's it's a bit of a home movie it's a first attempt it didn't seem it was seemed rough but but yeah i mean it but did you won well. a gemini and you got nominated an oscar, an oscar like yeah that's pretty impressive for the number one movie your yeah first movie, your yeah first attempt well sometimes you have um i've always noticed when i gardened that the first vegetables that came out were often the most flavorful they, they seem to pick up the minerals from the soil, right. probably the toxins as well. And then later on, they, they would be maybe bigger, but they wouldn't taste quite as concentrated. And that's how I feel about filmmakers in their first film. Sometimes it's within you and it bursts out. I mean, certainly Orson Welles proved that. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I mean, that must have been a nice vote of confidence to get that kind of recognition. Yeah. I think um, after making overtures, it was a lot easier to justify. Uh, I remember Telefilm at that point um, was thinking of, of of ending their funding of of documentaries. Um, it just coincided with right after the Making Overtures film that I had done, um, the the community orchestra film, and. Um, but but they changed their mind, I guess, um, and it was a case by case situation. But but it was much easier to get funding after that. And and then the second film that I did, All That Bach, uh, was nominated for a primetime Emmy as well. So so that you know whatever that means, right? You know, it's not that the films are really that that good, really at all. But but it has a certain cachet, and it it allows it to be easier to get future things. So I was on a roll in effect and I got to start attacking subjects that were bigger and and my next uh, you know I, I made a film about two Canadian composers Alexina Louis right. and John Weinzweig and then I uh, but I had already I was already on the road to making these bigger portraits like like my first Ravel film which was quite a big film so I, I wonder like a couple of things you know there used to be a time and I don't know if it's still true where people would say documentary films make no money at all and I don't know what that necessarily means, but yeah. you know that it's not a massive commercial success yeah. for the most part. Um, did that ever detract you? Was that ever an issue for you? We've been lucky in Canada, you know, to be able to fund these things. Um, uh, a lot of the films did sell pretty well. Uh, Sheena McDonald was our distributor for a long time and, and kind of did this outreach and, and would get sell up to 40 countries, um, some of these films. And... Um, 
not that they would make a lot of money, and I, I don't know if any of them ever made back their money, um, but there, there was... Um, there seemed to be a market. And you know what's so wonderful about these films, actually? I, and I have to say, and I'm, I'm realizing, realizing that now, um, because we were making a lot of these films in the late 80s um, and early 90s, so, so a lot of them are now, you know, approaching 30 years old or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, because we put a lot of care into the films, because there was a love of the subject, because we never thought of these as product but rather, you know, things that we kind of ripped out of ourselves with a lot of a lot of care and a lot of love. I think um, they they um, they had a certain quality, and and they still and these films have a huge shelf life. So there's a distributor now in in Europe, EuroArts, who have now repackaged some of my films and are selling them on home video and also DVD, Blu-ray. Um, and, and when I think about it, a lot of them are, are from the early nineties, like about 25 years old or even, uh, I don't know, my Manuel de Faya film, which I did in, in 1990, uh, they're making a lot of sales of, and I, I find that to be wonderful because mm-hmm. I've made some films since like recently that had a little bit more of a current affairs feel. And those are all, you know, they, they're irrelevant after a couple of years. Right. So... Uh, I I really love that aspect. Um, in other words, yeah, maybe they don't sell. Maybe they're not a big market, but somehow it just keeps on going. Right. I, I, I presume it speaks to also your talent and how you present these things. Or the lack of films out there, <laughs> <laughs> like I said. So, so the other thing is when I think about when people talk about documentary films, and I, I'm by no means an expert, but people say, what about an idea about this musician? And the first thing you think of is, well, they're not a household name or you need to have names or whatever. You, that's never been an issue. Like, It's not like you go for commercial appeal in terms of they have, it has to be a big name and it has to have its built-in huge audience. Yeah. I mean, I have been approached to make films about... I, I did make a film about Andrea Bocelli. Right. Uh, which was just um, a way to bring my family to Tuscany for five weeks. Um, <laughs> Did you have a good time? Uh, they had a good time. <laughs> um, and uh, I was approached at one point to make a, a, a film about Tina Turner um, and her last tour, which I, I liked, uh, but I just wanted certain conditions if I was going to do that. And and I don't think those conditions were met, so I didn't do it. Um, I'm really foolish. I'm, I don't have a commercial sense that way. I, I've made films that have stars in them, or but they're they're not necessarily mainstream stars. Right. And I, I don't jump at it. I don't sometimes... So uh, there was one film uh, where I was working on the music of Harold Arlen, and my music producer uh, said, you know, maybe we can get Bob Dylan on board to do one of the songs. And I went, mm I'm not sure Bob Dylan would do a good job at that song. And and the fact that Larry, he's Bob Dylan. And I and, and I later on I'm thinking, Larry, like, what's wrong with you? It is Bob Dylan. Right. He's a fairly well known musician. And the irony is he recently released a, a song by that composer. Right. Uh, so so I, I I I've been wrong a lot. I I I don't know commercial well. I don't But I don't, it's it's not a thing that deters you from pursuing a project. You don't sit there and go, it's not a name, therefore I can't do it. It's more the story. And- yeah. 
Yeah. You know, there's something wrong with me. I, even within the <laughs> classical genre, I resisted for a very long time to do anything having to do with Beethoven or Mozart. Um, it's like these guys don't need my help. <laughs> or but then I realized you can do those things but just find a story that's interesting to you so luckily I did do I mean yeah. in the end a film called Beethoven's Hair um, and and, uh, and the Mozart film is called Mozart Balls um, which is a really quirky film and and again I don't know yeah the commercial thing isn't really uh, a consideration it should be but uh, you know at the same time since 84 if I'm not mistaken you've probably done pretty well averaging a, a movie a year yeah. since then yes. which is pretty amazing was there any yeah. ever lean years like was there ever a time where you yes. uh, you questioned what you were doing yeah there were um i uh did a couple of films in 1997 uh, a big film on on uh, dmitry shostakovich and his struggles against stalin uh called my war years oh sorry called um the war symphonies um my Warriors is the film about Arnold Schoenberg. And, um, and then a film about the handover of Hong Kong um, from um, China, uh, mm-hmm. from, from Great Britain to China. Uh, again, a musical piece with Tan Dun's music and Yo-Yo Ma was involved in that. And then I was just trying to get some stuff off the ground and it wasn't working for whatever reason. And, then, and you know, when I look at my own filmography, I see suddenly there is a three or four year break and it, it's it's traumatizing, and um, and that's happened a couple times. These these breaks and but be, these breaks are still times when you're doing research and you're trying to sell ideas. Yeah, and you're still working in a way. Maybe yeah. not seeing money coming in, but it's in development, correct? Yeah, there are things being developed, but right. um, I was going for I was doing a lot of research on a project that I really really wanted to work on, and it, and. It kind of wasn't happening, so I was doing stuff that I didn't feel that comfortable with, and they weren't also happening, and and I needed to kind of break out of it. Um, and uh, eventually, I went back to my first love, Ravel, and, mm-hmm. and came up with this film, Ravel's Brain, uh, uh, about his death, basically, and um, and also this tiny little opera film, four-minute opera film called Toothpaste, which was he- joyous and humorous and fun. And, and it was with Alexina Louie, the composer, and Dan Redican, mm-hmm. um, who wrote the libretto, um, who lives on your street. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we did this uh, beautiful little thing that led to a bigger thing later down the road. In fact, two bigger things. We did this opera film called uh, Burnt Toast, which is composed of eight individual comic operas for film and then we did our our big work which very few people saw or know about called Mulroney the Opera which was basically banned (laughs) (laughs) in all the things that you have to do as a director and that could be starting with research and then then obviously trying to raise funds and and um, writing the project shooting it directing it and then editing it, marketing it. Is there a thing that you love the most and the thing that you hate the most? Oh, I've always really loved research, um, researching a subject uh, to a fault. I, I sometimes think that I would research forever and not start to actually shoot the film, much to the um, 
consternation. I mean, a lot of people are really upset when it's like, Larry, start making a film, especially broadcasters. Right, right, yeah. Um, I've been very lucky. The broadcaster in Germany, Arte, um, and, and before that, ZDF, have commissioned a lot of my films and um, or been part, you know, or, or been among the commissioners, but a major commissioner, and they just joke about how long I take to, to get ready to start shooting. Um, but they they like you enough to wait. Yeah, yeah. No, they've been really very good to, uh, to wait. Um, and uh, this was a problem I had in university, too. I was making a film, uh, and I had a group of people, and they got very frustrated with me, and they, they tricked me not to be at a shoot, and they started shooting without me because I had done too much research. And I, I'm very aware of that. I, 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 especially with the musical films, I, I love to get to know the repertoire and to really listen to the music and and start allowing images to flow over me of uh, or or coming up with new approaches like yeah i do like that thing that you said i mean i do love different forms but do, do you know at what point that you've done enough research is it apparent to you that okay now i'm ready to start or is it just an ongoing thing that you start shooting and you're still researching I used to think that um, in order to make a film, you had to be kind of a world's expert of your subject. I mean, it depends on the film. Mm -hmm. Some films you just want to go in and start talking to people and, um, and, and start to, to shoot and see what happens and see, start feeling it cooking. But then there's subjects that you do that, that are kind of scholarly. I, I, I think sometimes that some of the films that I've done could have earned a, a, um, a PhD because I, I, there's so much research and discovery along the way and new ideas that people didn't know about or myth, mythologies that you uncover and find out what is real and not real. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, at some point you have to let go. But no, I don't feel like I've ever researched enough. I'm, I'm working on a film right now that is probably the most daunting of all in terms of potential research. And it's, um, I don't know if it's a masochism sometimes when you choose certain subjects. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, obviously you kind of know before going into it the, the breadth of the material you have to go through or the, the focus you, you have to put into something like this. But is that, does that play into the decision at all? I think um, when, with the, because again, so many of my films have been about music and, and specific composers, I feel pretty good if I've read, read um, most of the biographies and, and, and if I've heard all of their music and, and try to get ideas from that. I love the music to suggest ideas. Um, then you feel like you've, you've done your work, you've done your legwork. But a lot of subjects aren't like that, and right. you'll never ever scrape the surface even. So you just have to come up with your approach and go for it. And hopefully, you know, the first thing you do often as a filmmaker is find out what other films have been made about that subject. And like I say, luckily most of mine are rarefied and nobody else would ever want to make a film about that. Um, but, but for the ones that do have <laughs> other suitors, <laughs> you want to find out what their approaches have been. Right. Um, and um, because I'm a little bit weird, I, I tend to choose different approaches from other filmmakers. I'm not interested in standard um, narrative. I like third-person narrator. Right. You know, I, 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 I like to come up with new things. So you've also done a number of movies that are totally unrelated to music. Yes. They might have music in them, but yes. they're not about music like Armand and Tehran and... 
13th Man. Yeah, and, um, and uh, Inside Hannah's Suitcase, yes. which is a Holocaust film. So when you, is your approach to making those films different? Or is it just making documentaries? And Well, let's talk about the football one for a moment because that, that was um, a very, we'll talk about scary for me. I, I, um, I admitted to everyone right away. When I was asked to do a film for Bell Media, for TSN, for the Sports Channel, on uh, CFL football, I had to, I, I called the people right away and I said, I think you've made a mistake. I, 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 um, I've made films mostly about music, classical music. This is a football film. I have to be honest and transparent. I have never seen a CFL game in my life. <laughs> really? Yeah, I hadn't. So I, um, and they, they were so wonderful and, and said, um, well, you, but you do make films about people and we want this to be a film about people. And they had already... Uh, a film in mind, like a specific subject, and it was about the the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and right. their incredible fan base. And I listened to it, and I thought, boy, this took me right back, like like thirty years. And I was thinking about making overtures when I was making this film about about the community orchestra. I would tell people, it doesn't really matter. Uh, this is a community activity. This is about the love for an activity that bring people together. And, and it doesn't matter if it's music or if it's a shared sport. I, I remember specifically saying football. Um, it, and, and I just went with that. I went out and I, had to, I then had to sell this idea to the football team. And this is a film about... So they come and ask you to make this, but they haven't told the teams. They, the team had an inkling, but I, they made me go out and actually sell the film to the, the, the heads of this football team, the Saskatchewan Rough right. Riders. And what made it worse was it was a film called The 13th Man. And The 13th Man has a double meaning because it's The 13th Man. There are 12 players in a CFL right. game. And The 13th Man, especially in Saskatchewan, is the crowd screaming. And, and they, they actually have an effect in the game. But there was this very painful meaning of 13th Man. In 2009, they, they just missed winning the Grey Cup. And it's a team that had only won three Grey Cups, three Grey Cups in their 100-year anniversary right. of, of the Grey Cup, um, which is pathetic considering there were only eight teams. Um, <laughs> so they had this terrible game where they got the Grey Cup and then, they, then the refs, referees, at, at, when the clock was at zero, realized there were 13 men on the field. So Montreal got to do one more field kick after they blew the first one. And they won the Grey Cup, Montreal, and, okay. and Saskatchewan lost it. And for most people in Saskatchewan, I had the impression that this was probably the worst calamity. In the, it's worse than drought. Well, yeah, because this it's, is huge. This is their life, <laughs> it was right? huge. Yeah. So I had to go and convince the team to let me do a film about the 13th man with them knowing. And they said, you cannot. This is like a, a trauma. It's a provincial trauma shared um, like you, like I had no idea how much psychoanalytical time had been spent for people and, and the, the depth of the depression uh, that they had. So anyway, uh, I went and, and, and I didn't, I had, I still hadn't seen a CFL game and I'm supposed to be selling this idea to a football team. And it was so awful. 
but but I did catch up on on uh, I started watching Friday Night Lights, that wonderful right, right. series. Uh, so I understood the rules of football. Okay, so you, like it's not just CFL football. Yeah. Period. Oh yeah, haven't. NFL too. I understand that's a football league in the United States. No, I hadn't seen that either. I think I remember, I remember seeing one game in grade eight. Um. But um, it's a scare, and I never played. I played it once and, and didn't understand the rules. And I remember running down the field with a football on my arm and, and then and, and doing well. People were cheering me. And then when somebody was about to tackle me, I threw the ball to someone else. And you're not supposed to do that, I found out. <laughs> so anyway, um, but, but I started, I felt like Chauncey Gardner and being there. I started talking about community orchestras as a metaphor to the football team. <laughs> and they really liked it. They said, T- tell me more about this community orchestra idea. Like, they liked the metaphor, not realizing that, for me, it wasn't a metaphor. It's the only thing I could talk about. Was a me- and, and so they, they allowed this film to be done. And so it was a film about right. the community, and it was a film about the love of, of an event. And it did very well. And, and TSN told me that it was their highest-rated documentary in their 20-year history. Wow. So Chauncey Gardner approach works. But it didn't want to... What, you didn't want to pursue more sports films. I absolutely wanted to pursue more oh, sports films. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. I really loved the experience. I remember when, when the first day of shooting, I was there with the cameraman, John Tran, and, and, uh, and the Sandman, Sanjay Mehta, and, and, and they had to literally peel me out of the van. I, I sudden, all I was going to do is talk to people having a picnic playing football, throwing footballs around. And the idea that I'd have to talk to them about football was so terrifying to me. I said, I can't do this. I'm a fraud. I can't do I was used to having PhD knowledge of the composers yeah, yeah. of the films. And I can't do this. Um, even that three-year-old down there knows football better than I do. I can't do this. And, and finally, I relaxed. And I ended up enjoying it so much by the end of the film that that I was trying to I would go into TSN with other uh, documentary ideas and and they weren't really in the market they they weren't interested at that time in doing other uh, documentaries but they are now actually right now as of this month they're going to do another six films of uh, and and I might I might end up directing one of them wow was you know obviously from the success of their first film getting the recognition that it did at what point in your career did you did opportunities come your way as opposed to you having to create opportunities? I, I presume it's yes. it's always an ongoing thing that you, you do both. But you know, the fact that somebody would just call you and say, Hey, Larry, we want you to make this movie about football or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's interesting because a lot of the ideas orig- originate within you. Right. Um, and sometimes they come from the outside. And and um and when I made my first big film, my big Ravel film, uh, BBC ended up buying it. I remember um, the person who ran the music department, Dennis Marks was his name, um, was laughing because he offered such a small amount. And that film was 103 minutes. And I remember him offering 9,000 pounds for this, and I, and which was really, for BBC, which was a, rel- a rich broadcaster, it really was very little money. But he, but he said, you know, now that I'm uh, the head of music, I, I, he also was a film director. He said, I was going to do a film on the Spanish composer Manuel de Falla. 
do, do you know him? And I went, yeah, of course I, I know Faya. Um, he, he's kind of a national composer of Spain. And then he was a one who was, who was a friend of Maurice Ravel. Um, and he said, I, I was going to direct this, but I'm wondering if you could direct it and we'll get BBC to be one of the co, you know, the pre-sales and, right. and co-producers and, and, um, and I got to do this with Spanish television and, and, um, this wonderful opportunity to do a film on, on the Spanish composer who has such beautiful music and was such a complex person. And in fact, what I was saying earlier, how I love the idea of a director being a chameleon and being able to hide behind right. the subject. Here is an example. So, so Ravel was, I'm not a religious person at all. Ravel was a Catholic French guy who, who was baptized, but was a, an absolute atheist his whole life. Manuel de Falla, on the other hand, was a strict Catholic Spanish man who became more and more and more religious. Uh, religious to the point that it was it was impeding his art. He couldn't create, and and his earlier works, which are so sensuous, he didn't. He tried to get them to prevent them from being performed because they were too sexy, wow. and and he thought they were sinful. His own music, his own creation. So so I wanted to hide behind his character. I wanted to be a a religious Catholic Spaniard when I made that film. I wanted to be, and and because my films don't have third person narration and I do lots of research and I get them I, I get the words of the um, composer to narrate the films generally um, I had all his words about God and about whatever and um, and yeah so so that was a great opportunity that was a great opportunity and that that happened every once in a while sometimes weird things happen um, soon after that film I was approached by a broadcaster who said oh you've got to You've got to see this incredible book of correspondence between Arnold Schoenberg, I forget what they said, and another composer, and 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 you've got to and and somebody else said, oh, if you're going to do a film on Schoenberg, I'd be very interested. Uh, and it was really weird. It was this like snowball effect, and it turned out that the book that this film was based on didn't exist. It was a figment of of that broadcaster's imagination. Really. So I, but it was too late. I had already done, started doing research. And, and um, so the film had a momentum of its own. Uh, so there's an example, somebody coming from the outside. And, and, and um, but that, that, I mean, there's, yeah, like I said, some of these films come from other people and, and some. Do ideas, if I come to you and say, Larry, I think there's, there's a film here. Yeah. What do you think? And then you think about it. I mean, does it, do you know quickly whether it's something you want to pursue or not yeah you know relatively recently mm -hmm. um these two weird guys from a company <laughs> called riddle i've heard about them yeah jason charters and liam romales i was at this trade show with them in berlin and they had created this trailer that was really beautifully edited i think you know about that and um it was, uh, the working title was a film called The Jews Who Stole Christmas. And I looked at this and I knew the premise. I knew that it was about composers who had written Jewish, or Jewish composers who had written Christmas songs. And, and I, I saw this trailer and I went up to them and I was so jealous. 
I was so, I thought, this is the greatest film. I'm thinking inside. And I would be so into that. I wish I could be involved in that film. And they, and I couldn't believe it because they're both really accomplished, wonderful directors. And they said, you know, we were thinking for this film that we probably shouldn't direct it. And we were wondering who should. And we were talking about you on the plane over here. And I said, I'll do it. And, and, uh, so, so you knew immediately. Yeah. I knew immediately that, and, and that doesn't usually happen, but I knew immediately on that one that I would love to, I would love to direct that film, um, and get into that subject. And, um, it's you, interesting. You spoke about, and this would be another example, I guess, that film is being broadcast in a number of different countries. You've had success in many, many countries with your work. Yeah. Can you explain that? Like, is there, like, is there an approach that says what you do isn't really just Canadian? Like, is that a silly question? Like, do you, do you approach it in a way that it's for the international market or do you not even think about it that way? I remember a long time ago um, thinking that in Canada, in a way, we had an advantage over other places. I, I knew that a lot of European countries, when they made films about comparable subjects, um, they were very European. And, and, and it's something that may not reach right. to Canadians or, or certainly not to Americans. And I was thinking that as Canadians we have this strong American influence and, and kind of the American, we were very aware of the American way of doing things, but we're not American and, and we're not going to make, it's hard for us to imitate that American model and I don't think we should and, and really never have been very good at that except for all the Canadians who started the American studios and actually defined that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and, and so I thought that somehow we were in between and certainly with the classical music films, I thought, Maybe we can have a bit of the American verve without being conscious about it, or even sub, you know, it's a subconscious thing, with these wonderful European subjects, and that somehow we were different. But I also think that with so many of these subjects, we are kind of outsiders, and it's just a way to look at things. And I, I don't know the number of times that I've been approached by European broadcasters who said, listen, I know that this is a Spanish subject and in theory we should go with a Spanish filmmaker or I know this is a French or German or Austrian or whatever, um, Russian. Um, but there's something about that Canadian, first of all, the Canadian documentary tradition, but also the, um, I don't know, there's just a way of looking at things that seems to work. And, and we welcome you being the outsider um, and, and, and analyzing this stuff. And um, one beautiful example of that was um, when Mozart's birthday was approaching um, in, in um, uh, 2006. It was his 250th birthday, and there were going to be a lot of Mozart shows. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the commissioner, uh, who's now a CEO, at, at Arte uh, Wolfgang Bergman, <laughs> Wolfgang, uh, he came to me and he said, Larry, you haven't submitted any ideas. This was like a year and a half before the birthday. You haven't come up with any ideas for Mozart. I said, yeah, but everyone's doing Mozart. I don't want to. And he said, uh, yeah, but you're different. Like you're Canadian. You've got this weird kind of Canadian perspective and humor. And it'd be fun to do something different, different from what everyone else is doing. And we just started sitting down, and I, I immediately started talking about my fascination with with Mozart kugeln, Mozart balls, these right. these chocolate things. Yes. 
which of course had this weird naughty because I had done Ravel's brain and Beethoven's hair when I talked about Mozart balls they assumed it was a body part trilogy I was trying to create (laughs) but I was aware that Several companies were making these chocolate balls and calling them Mozart balls or the German equivalent. And, uh, and each of them were fighting about who had the original recipe. And I'm thinking, original recipe? I mean, Mozart, these were invented 100 years after Mozart died. Like, what are you talking about, original <laughs> recipe? Um, anyway. Uh, but you do have a theory that one is better than the other, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, had, I was going to film in two Mozart ball why do you say that well yeah i think I, I, <laughs> one day you brought over some, some oh, of yeah. these chocolates and i yeah. think you actually mentioned that these are the better ones versus the ones in made in austria or where yeah well mozart balls are a very personal subjective thing <laughs> like some of them right. some of the german ones in particular have really have no right to call themselves balls because they have flat bottoms but they tend to have less sugar and more marzipan so a lot of people, it's a more mature adult version of a Mozart ball. The ones that we featured are are pure circle, are absolute circles, orbs, um, which is Mirabelle. Uh, I get nervous now because when I mention a brand, uh, anyway, I'll get censored. When when we showed this at Arte, the the word Mirabelle had to be censored every oh, really? time. Oh, yeah, okay. and and apparently they had to do two hundred blurrings or obscuring of language. And, Anyway, Mozart. So, um, but there was uh, one. Um, uh, there's a company called First, First, and they claim to be the first Mozart ball. But Mirabelle, they claim to be the first. So, even but they're mass produced, and First is hand dipped. So I was going to show the difference and show how beautiful hand dipping is versus the manufacturing. But then it all backfired because I saw the people who were hand dipping look like it's like kill me now. I've made so many of these, <laughs> and the people in Mirabelle were all laughing and joking while the machinery was doing it. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe the industrial revolution was a good thing. <laughs> Does Canadian content play in what you do? Like Canadian what? Content like oh yes. Do, do you look at projects and say oh, it has to have? It has to be Canadian content, or like I get the feeling that that's not an issue. Oh, oh yeah, it is. Um, it is. Uh, you know, we've had a, a lot of our work and early work was supported by CBC and and uh, or TV Ontario, and we're so we always had a healthy dose of Canadian performers. Right. Okay. Uh, so so it, I'm I, I shouldn't say it now, but for some of my early orchestral films, I was working with Charles Dutois, now the infamous Charles Dutois. After all this uh, harassment stuff, um, who who was n- known in the world to be the foremost conductor of the music of Maurice Ravel and the foremost conductor of the music of Manuel de Falla, right? Um, and then later um, uh, did orchestral music of uh, other other composers. Who he was superb. He was a superb composer. So it wasn't like we're apologizing for being Canadian. What we have to put in these. These were the best, and I was lucky. You you asked about use of stars. Well, within the classical, you know, uh, world, there there was uh, great stars. There was like the pianists, and 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 I mean, we worked with Yo Yo Ma a lot, who is a real star, and mm-hmm. he's not, you know, um, and and um, but I I got to work with great pianists and singers and and uh, orchestras and who who were at the top of their game, and and arguably. And this is how magical it was. You know, I would work on a film on Ravel or Faya or Schoenberg, and I would figure out who I thought the best 
in the world were at, at those interpretations. And often I'd get to work with them. Wow. So I'm getting Pierre Boulez to conduct chamber works of Arnold Schoenberg. And I thought, I believed he was the greatest at doing that. And, and I thought Dutrois was the greatest. And here we are hiring the Montreal Symphony with the greatest Ravel conductor performing my favorite work by Ravel. And I'm directing cameras and I sit back sometimes and just watch and I just start, I kind of got lost and I was listening and going, my goodness, I kind of helped put this together. And, and uh, how, how, what a privilege. It's been a really privileged career. Uh, I'm sure. It's, it's an impressive career. Do you, do you have a favorite? I know they're all your children. But do you have a favorite work that you've done? I'll tell you who my favorite children are. There's <laughs> Ali and Dania are my two. I'm, uh, they're right. definitely my favorite. Um, <laughs> um, Not one over the other. <laughs> <laughs> they have different qualities, but they both are magical, perfect people. Um Let's see. Uh, there are certain films that sometimes the films that, like I know people don't always love Ravel's brain, mm-hmm. but I really ripped that out of myself. Um, and, and poor Ravel had to die for it. Um, and I'm, I'm very fond of it. I'm very fond of um, Inside Hannah's Suitcase. I think right. the story of Hannah's Suitcase is beautiful. And I think that I, I had the opportunity to work with these people who told a very humane and 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 um, Holocaust story that's different from others. It's about tolerance and hope and and going on from here. Um, I I don't know. There, there's so many films and and so many like I I I have to admit I I I know filmmakers who don't like looking at their films and I I don't look at my films a lot, but I I think of them fondly. Um, A lot of people, I've heard a lot of filmmakers talk about, oh, I'd never want to see that film. I never, but because there was so much care put into these films and at some point um, there was some love put into them, I'm happy with making overtures and I'm happy with all that. I've been sitting recently and and looking at all of them because I'm trying to um, redigitize them. I have a lot of materials that I kind of have to just throw out. They take up too much room in the lab. So I'm redigitizing them and, and I'm being forced to look at films. And some that I thought were pretty good are not. But a lot of them are, are really, I'm very fond of them. And, um, and it's I also think a part of your life, right? Like it's a chunk of your life that you put into these things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there are events around my life and, and my beautiful events with, with my wife, Mary. Um, and also my former partners, um, and now I'm on my own. I've been on my own for the last two two years or three years. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm aware of my... And I also, there's a sad quality. You know, a lot of these films um, took me away from my private life. And, and um, because I was making films that were in other countries, which sounds great... But they're for extended periods yeah. of time at time, and I, I missed a lot of my children growing up. Um, when my daughter, the second daughter, Daniel, was three, I realized I have missed exactly one third of her life in terms of being away, right. and um, I it's just it's awful because these are wonderful, you never get wonderful that people. Back. Yeah. But they are incredible people, and that's probably because I was away and my wife was in charge. <laughs> so it worked sure out. That, yeah, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, they would be, who knows what they would be doing. Okay, so you've also won, I'm going to wrap this up soon, but I have to ask, you've also won tons of awards. 
like ridiculous amounts of Emmys and I know Gemini's it's, it's a sham. Mm-hmm. What do, what do they mean to you at this point? Like at 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 your level, because I presume you know you're good at what you do and you have certain standards and you you bring it every time. So what do these awards mean to you? Now, is it something that you expect? Is it something that doesn't mean anything to you? I, I have no idea, especially um, when you like win thirty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some of the awards meant a lot at the time, uh, partly to reassure people who put money into it that, see, this was worthwhile. Right, right. Keep investing. Let's do more together. I've, um, I care a lot less about them. I, I've been entering certain films into far fewer, if any, uh, festivals. And uh, there was a certain point where I, I believed that the... Um, I, I know that... Um, a couple of my films were entered into award ceremonies where a jury member said, you know, we really thought your film was great and, and deserved this award, but we kind of wanted to give it to a, a new filmmaker because right. you have so many awards. And I thought, what? That's not, that's not right. It should be on the merit of the... But then I thought about it and I thought, yeah, yeah, sure. It's true. I mean, you don't want to be all washed up. You don't want to be a has-been. You don't want... But but on the other hand, so what? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but I'm not sure if that indicates that you, one is a has-been, right? It's just... I mean, obviously, there's so much respect that... I remember when I was about 35, um, and I had made already a number of films, but not a huge number... And I was the first time I was referred in a newspaper article as the veteran filmmaker Larry Weinstein, and I I was traumatized <laughs> that I was already a veteran because it felt like the next stage is okay now you've ended. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I years ago I, I was asked to um, direct or, or yeah to to kind of put together an event to pay homage to. Um, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, Bernardo, sorry, Bernardo Bertolucci, um, and and um, it was a sort of a lifetime kind of honor thing. And he said, "No, absolutely no way. This is the kind of thing that's done for somebody at the very end of their life." This was two thousand one, so right. he had still had some more films in him, and um, and, and or or they're dead. Right. And and he made me come over and convince him that. Um, that uh, it should be done, and and when we spoke, finally he allowed me to do this homage to him, and and um, uh, I'll tell you though, it's it's something that's kind of weird and timely because you haven't mentioned my awful last name these days, Weinstein. Um, <laughs> is that difficult? Because somebody, I, I know I've heard jokes, so does that is it an effect on you? Well, it's funny. I, I have a I come from a family of of. By coincidence, their names are Weinstein as well, and they're people who are are known for their incredible integrity and 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 um, sense of ethics, and mm-hmm. and are in no way creepy. Uh, my father, who who passed away last year during the making of um, of, of the Jewish um, Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, but also his older brother, uh, my uncle Jack Weinstein, Jack P. Weinstein, is a, a federal judge in in the U.S. who is ninety six and still on the bench, wow. and he's an incredible force of nature who was ready to retire finally, but he thought, I can't really retire in the age of Trump because he's, it's not that he's left, he's a humane, good person, right. which I'm not sure that, that the president is. And he wants to counterbalance some of the things. He has a lot of power in his court, and it's a very far-reaching court. Um, and he embodies 
this greatness. So when I went and met with uh, Bertolucci in 2001, he, he, um, when he said, convince me that, you, that I can do this tribute, he had me come over to his place. It's while I was making the film of Bocelli, so I was in Rome. And, and he said, uh, come over to my place and I'll make lunch for you and you can talk to me about this. But he was being kind of elusive. Right. And when I got there, the first thing he asked me when, when, he, when, he, when I was in the room was, I have a question for you. Are you related to Harvey Weinstein? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, I have no relation to Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, this is 2001. This is beef. And he said, are you absolutely positive? Like, he, he attacked me. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, I have a lot of family from the U.S. None of them are filmmakers. I am not related to Harvey Weinstein. It's a fairly common name. And he went, okay, let's have lunch. And, and I've, but I've always been aware of Harvey yeah. being, he came into our office once, um, and with Neve Fitchman and, and, um, and he, uh, and Neve said, Oh, I want Harvey. I want you to meet, uh, my partner, Larry Weinstein. And Harvey looked over at me and said, liar, hmm. which is kind of an, a joke, right, right. which is the kinder side. The kinder side of Harvey Weinstein is making a caustic joke. <laughs> Very Trumpian. <laughs> um, my final question to you. Yes. When you look back on your career, from that kid who did the Slaughterhouse movie, or to the one who, who did the uh, the Briefcase movie, <laughs> to to now, many many movies past. Like, can you could you imagine where you would have wound up, this journey that you've taken? You know, I, I um, for some reason because I associated film and music so strongly, I. Already, I know when I met my partners, I, I said, they said, what film would you like to make more than any film in the world? And I said, I think I'd like to make a film on Maurice Ravel. And um, I, I think I, maybe because of my lack of imagination, I, I just sort of had a trajectory in my mind of where I wish I could go, not that I thought it was feasible. Um, no, I mean, the answer... Yeah, of course the answer is no. Of course I didn't think that I would be able to do this for so long. But on the other hand, I, I, and I say this sincerely, I, I, I don't have any uh, areas of expertise. I really am not very competent at <laughs> anything. So, no, no, seriously, so directing films is like the only thing I can do. And even then, I have to have the greatest editors and cameramen and, and researchers and writers and collaborators. I always had this personal philosophy that I should be allowed to hire people and be the weakest link. And, um, and, and it sounds silly, and I sound like I'm, oh, Larry, you're great. But, but I've, I've had this wonderful, but beautiful it is, experience. I mean... Uh- it is a difficult Look at the Christmas film that we just did right. with Jason and Liam. They knew I was going through this difficult time uh, with my father mm-hmm. and everything. And yet, and they picked up the slack and they, they did these interviews and, and, and we got to create something together. But then I'm called the director. So, you know, festivals want me to go down uh, and not the producers. Well, it's, it's a ridiculous thing. It's, it is. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm always amazed at how difficult it is to do something great like it's 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 easy to shoot something put it together but to make it something substantial requires a lot of work maybe some luck but a lot of talent and and a, and, and a team of really good yeah. people 
Um, do you see filmmaking as an easy thing or a difficult thing? I think it's really difficult. Um, I think it's, you know, it's that whole Bach thing, you know, 5% inspiration, 95% hard work. Um, it is difficult and it does take a ta- uh, <laughs> it does take a village to get it. I was very lucky at Rhombus that we had this kind of infrastructure to, to get things going, but that kind of fell apart. Right. Um, and, um, I, 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 um, you, you start realizing in terms of that luck thing, you realize there there isn't much different between difference between completing a film because they are huge they're huge efforts and, and they're it's successful in terms of people liking it but also in terms of you liking it and those that they're not quite there and I just needed to do a little adjustment and it would have been good right. and 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 you don't know you really don't know um, so I don't know I don't. Sometimes you lose touch with what, what is what is a successful film. What is it? Is it a personal thing? Is it something because it reaches people? I I think I'm starting to realize that you really have to real after all these years that you really do have to reach people and they have to move them. And um, I I always went on this feeling that if it moved me enough, it must move them, or mm-hmm. there'll be some audience that move, is moved by by the films. I I think this whole thing. When, when the people at, at Bell and TSN said, oh, my films are about people, I, I think that I've, I've really tried really hard to humanize the subjects. I don't want the intellectual side of all these, you know, intellectual subjects. I want it to be human at the core and, and, and warm and moving. And, and that's something that I think has maybe been a through line, or at least I hope it is. Well, I thank you for this time. Um, I had eye surgery like 10 days ago and my eyes are red, but yeah, I think you're my, your eyes might be redder than mine now, so <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> but I, it's been a real pleasure to sit down and talk to you about your career, and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Marco. Thank you.